Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and this week I sat down with Richard Falk, a leading international law professor, activist, and author of over 50 books describing his various encounters throughout his career in international relations. He recently published a memoir entitled Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Pilgrim. The book discusses a life of progressive commitment, detailing his visits with Pham Von Dong in North Vietnam, Khomeini during the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Nelson Mandela at the height of apartheid in South Africa, and multiple diplomats in Palestine and Israel, a struggle that is central to his pursuit of international peace and justice. As a pioneer thinker, he was active in seeking an end to the greatest injustices of the 20th century, while at the same time teaching at Ohio State University and Princeton University for 40 years, as well as serving as the UN's Special Rapporteur for Occupied Palestine. Noam Chomsky put it best, This intimate and penetrating account of a remarkable life is rich in insights about topics ranging from the academic world to global affairs to prospects with many lessons from a troubled world. After many years of loose ties with Santa Barbara, Richard Falk is now a research fellow with the Ophelia Center for Global and International Studies at UCSB. I was able to sit down with him this week to talk about his life, work, and why he's now settled in Santa Barbara. So first off, thank you for meeting with me. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed reading the book. I was a poli-sci and English major at UCSB, so uh-huh. I kind of have an affinity for this type of stuff. But in my journalistic work, it spans a lot of things, but I really do appreciate these interviews, especially with people whose ideas I respect. So thank you. Oh, it's good to have the opportunity to talk with you. So my first question, I'll start off with your early life, which is kind of the first half of the book. So Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Pilgrim is a memoir of sorts, part autobiography and part politics. I personally appreciate this style of writing because it brings life to the analytical frameworks that you create, using your personal experiences to talk about philosophical ideas and the politics of international relations. So what was your intention in setting out to write a book like this? Well, I guess I tried to um, make these connections between my personal life and my engagements, both as a longtime member of a political science faculty and as a citizen of a democratic country, and to be as honest as possible about what went wrong along the way and my disappointments, both personal and professional, and basically to present my life as something that was dedicated to achieving a better human future without any illusions that I could do very much about how the future unfolded. So I approached this with, I suppose, a balance between telling my story and a certain sense of humility that the story might not be worth telling for other people to inflict on other people. The reactions have been reassuring to me, had some good reviews and blurbs from friends and uh, notable citizen pilgrims in my language. Yeah. Uh, 
And in your early life, you talk a lot about family too, your dad's influence, your mother's career in tennis that took up a lot of her time, your sister's mental health. But in discussing your relationships with family and close friends, I sense this sort of imposter syndrome, if you will, considering the book's details and the life that it details. How did you overcome that sense when you were younger that you didn't know what you wanted to do with your life? You didn't know what your Jewish ancestry meant to you. Uh, you didn't know how you fit into the social dichotomy in New York at the time in the 30s and 40s. And in turn, it brings up a long-lived experience of many Americans who live in that liminal space between two identities. So I wanted to ask mm -hmm. what you thought about that. Actually, for most of my time, at least at Princeton, I didn't have so much of a tension, although it wasn't academically fashionable to be as much of an activist as I was. And in that sense, I was somewhat marginalized at Princeton as a conservative institution. I never suffered from that, although somebody, uh, I think in the administration, told me I cost Princeton a million dollars a year in donations. There was very conservative alumni, and they were also big donors to Princeton, and they were upset with what was happening at Princeton that had nothing to do with me, like bringing women into the university and being tolerant of political activity, more openness to gay people, and the whole atmosphere of the 1960s, which they blame me because I was visible through my anti-war activity. I was at that time more or less published by mainstream places like the New York Times. And so I was a kind of lightning rod for this pushback by the alumni. There were many letters about how I had ruined their children. There was a, a sort of slick weekly, alumni weekly publication. And the irony of the, at that time was that the students influenced me more than I influenced them. And so it was... Uh, completely without much real foundation, just an emotional objection. I crossed this red line when I became more active on the Israel-Palestine question. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I tried to describe that process by which I had, I had realized that being active on that issue, at least in a, in a way that was critical of Israel and uh, sympathetic with the Palestinian struggle, would create a, a backlash. At the same time, I was very close friends with the leading Palestinian intellectual, Edward Said, mm -hmm. who was a Columbia professor at that time. And we were tennis and squash partners as well as friends. And he used to tease me about being so active in these other areas, but staying away from. And so gradually, step by step, I became involved. And it actually made me more conscious than I had ever been of my Jewish identity and ancestry. I was brought up in Manhattan in a very secular environment that was if anything, anti-religious, and in my case, mindless or clueless about Jewish tradition even. So I was conscious of 
always being a Jew. There were lots of Jews in the schools I went to as a kid, but it wasn't an integral part of my life till I began to be criticized and attacked because I entered into this political domain. And then I was appointed UN Special Rapporteur for Occupied Palestine. Mm -hmm. And I got hate mail and death threats and all kinds of things. And it was very unpleasant in that personal way because there are a couple of very pro-Zionist NGOs that focus their energy on defaming me. And uh, because I w had a certain public visibility from these other activities, I'd also been quite publicly involved in interpreting the Iranian revolution that came in the late 70s. And so I was accused and occasionally had such consequences as cancelled lectures or things like that, particularly in the UK, oddly enough, and Canada, but not here, not in the US. Yeah. Uh, but probably I was not invited to things I might have been invited to. And I had previously been a kind of frequent um, expert witness at congressional committees and things like that. And I ne and I was, after crossing this red line, I was never again invited to do that kind of thing. And that's perfect to go into my next question, too, because throughout the book, you do act as this critic of Israel and Zionism when discussing the Palestinian struggle for basic rights. And you write that this position develops from a far-left perspective combined with visionary humanism and progressive internationalism. Where does this position fall on the American political spectrum today? And how did this viewpoint shape how you engage in academia and engage your students in critical examination? I find that students are very receptive to this kind of view on the Israel-Palestine question. And in a strange way, it contradicts the generally right-wing development of in American mainstream politics that has reached its climax during the Trump presidency, but has dominated the Republican Party and has certainly altered the character of so-called bipartisan politics since then and poses a threat of a second coming, so to speak, yeah. uh, initially in the congressional elections of 2022 and then in 2024, if, as seems likely, Trump tries to run again and to undermine the democratic constitutional framework as he did through the challenge to the electoral process. At the time, it was, well, it's always been outside the so-called bipartisan consensus on Israel-Palestine, which is this unconditional special relationship. Mm -hmm. No matter what Israel has done or is doing, it will be protected from international censure. And even though, I don't know if you saw this, the, the former attorney general of Israel has admitted that Israel is an apartheid state. Yeah. 
which by international law is an international crime, a second only to genocide. And yet the entire political spectrum, except for a few, these few congresspeople elected in the last election, refused to recognize it's a non-Trumpian, non-Trumpist way of refusing to see inconvenient reality and to not accept the evidence that has clearly accompanied Israel's dispossession of the Palestinians and later policies and practices of repression. It's hard to situate it on the political spectrum because it's such a uniquely framed issue. And I suspect there are probably people on the far right that are closer to my position than some of the people on the near left, at least, and certainly on the liberal side of the Democratic Party, which has tried to find ways to reconcile Israel with uh, democracy and human rights and yeah. has to do a lot of manipulation of the facts to manage that. And when you're engaging with your academic studies and you're getting students to engage with these topics, what way would you like them to view what is going on in international relations? How do you dissect that? Well, I try to present my views without hiding them or pretending to be objective. At the same time, I make a, I think, successful effort to allow for the expression and commitment to views that are antagonistic to mine. And actually, surprisingly, I had uh, little trouble with students and uh, quite a few <laughs> rather Zionist students at the time they were particularly during my Princeton you know I was there for 40 years yeah. which is a long time later on they would make contact with me and say they had changed their views and were grateful to me in one way or another for opening their eyes to, to things they didn't want to see, mm -hmm. so on. So from, from students, I had very little. Princeton had a very pro-Zionist Middle East Studies Center, and they were pretty hostile to me, but not the way these NGOs were during my UN six years. Mm -hmm. They were so hostile, in fact, that a student I had from Morocco who was a prince, he was the nephew of the king and a person of considerable wealth, he established a parallel institution. At, he gave $12 million for the establishment of a center for the contemporary study of the Arab world, something like that. Mm which was supposed to be less ideological and more open-minded. And he himself was quite pro-Palestinian. We've collaborated in a couple of projects since then, and so we still became friends. Falk gained such public notoriety over his opinion on the Israel-Palestine conflict that he became a target as a, quote, self-hating Jew. In his memoir, he asked himself, was it worth it? To which he responds, yes. He was less interested 
and the personal costs associated with a career and friendships than what was actually making any sort of difference to the Palestinian struggle and their rights under international law. Falk describes his efforts as ineffectual at negotiating a peace agreement, privy to the fact that sustainable peace was being pushed further and further away, but also as important for shaping public discourse, emphasizing what was actually at stake and upsetting the current balance of forces at play. So you make the point that most stories of violent national origins were glorified by the victors while the suffering of the losers is distorted or erased. As empathy gave way to what you call liberal gestures, there were still no concrete efforts made to reconcile with the wrongdoings of the past. And this is commentary on world history that has repeated itself for decades and can only be redeemed through reparations like museums, socioeconomic support, monetary reparations, those concrete things that shift systemic injustices. So what has challenging the system meant for you throughout your career in international relations? Well, I suppose aside from what I described as sort of marginalization, and that's complicated because it's less political than what I would call epistemological, to, has to do with my emphasis on value-guided research rather than empirically founded. So in that sense, I was against the current of political science and international relations that was trying very hard to imitate economics and to be as, quote, scientific as possible. And I was trying to be as normative as possible. So that put me at odds in a certain way. And my writing in that sense was not influential in the mainstream. And I was seen both as an ideological critic of American foreign policy and of political realism in international relations, and as a kind of left critic or utopian analyst of global trends. And I was very active for 20 years in something called the World Order Models Project, which was a global project which brought together people like myself from all parts of the world, including China, India, Latin America, and so on. It was a very interesting group of people and it produced a series of books and had a certain impact. And there's just recently, just a couple months ago, there was an attempt to revive it as a project. It probably came at too early to be relevant, but now with climate change and mm -hmm. the pandemic, this kind of global effort to constitute a meaningful global community has perhaps more political relevance. Yeah. So throughout the book, you made friends with many prominent civil society activists, including people probably at this summit, and including Edward Said, like you mentioned earlier, Ekbat Ahmad, William Sloan Coffin, Daniel Ellsberg, Cora Weiss, Saul Mendelbitz, Noam Chomsky, Ramsey Clark, and even Nelson Mandela. Throughout the novel, you say that you never intended to make waves, but always found yourself as a target of pro-war advocates, described as an anti-Semite during the Israel-Palestine conflict, and even pinned as a fruitcake upon your UN appointment and so on. So what drew you to this progressive current and what kept you afloat? 
It's a sort of a mystifying question for myself, <laughs> I mean, which I probably didn't successfully address in the uh, memoir. And I don't know whether it was something that goes back to my childhood. I had a kind of contrarian reaction to my mother's very rich family, who were sort of humanly not very sympathetic and contrasted with my father's rather modest uh, family that were much more humanly sympathetic. And I, I don't know whether it led me to, in sports, for instance, to favor the underdog and to be against the establishment teams, which in New York were the New York Yankees when I was growing up. Because of this uncertainty about my own identity as a teenager and so on, I was uh, sort of fanatically engaged with sports in all of those years, sports and games to some extent. And as I tried to describe it, it almost had disastrous results for me because I was on academic probation at the University of Pennsylvania when I, after my first year's inability to combine the academic side with sports and play sides of life. And going back to that formative time, too, in your early years, you encountered many high-level political figures at that time, too. Alexander Kerensky, as well as now famous figures like Jackson Pollock, Sanzi Kabor. You mentioned in the book that you were genuinely disinterested at that time and generally apolitical. But what impact do you think being around this level of discourse in your formative years made for you? It probably, and my parents were divorced early in my life, and I spent a lot of time, more than I liked, with adults. And my father had a considerable contact with me. He was the lawyer for and friend of the Gabor sisters. And one of them lived in our apartment in New York for a long time. And even though he was disappointed in his own later life, he had a lot of contact with these celebrity people. It probably did unconsciously at least affect me. And that, and that was another, the Kerensky group was extreme anti-communists. And again, I found it unconvincing in that atmosphere, that partly because I was, I guess, bored by the conversations. I would ask them what their evidence was that I developed a kind of skepticism about what that sort of Cold War and pre-Cold War period uh, was the mainstream politics. So I was sort of skeptical of that and worried by the use of the atomic weapons at the end of World War II. I thought that we were living in too dangerous a world for traditional geopolitics, and I still feel that. And so that part of my sense of reality was to, that unless there were major transformations in international relations, the future was rather bleak. And I continue to feel that and think that the, the U.S. in particular is in a lot of trouble. It's over-militarized, underfunding its own society, distortion of priorities in the way it sees the world, and in a very 
important sense, instead of trying to confront China and compete with China, it should be learning from China. Because China has had the most amazing development process in all of history. And it has done that at the same time that it solved problems of poverty that afflicted at least 300 or 400 million people within its own borders. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things wrong with China and, uh, that it's done, but still it's an amazing story and its expansion beyond its borders has been based on win-win approaches to other society, building roads, building harbors, building uh, railroads in Africa and parts of Asia, its road and belt project. It hasn't followed the Western colonial patterns of relying on military power to expand. And I think this, this is a model of how to coexist in a world of states that is much more beneficial for the actors including the actor that wants to dominate, then is this military path. But we're stuck with this military path because it's existed now for 80 years and the governmental bureaucracy has been militarized to a significant degree. And there's a huge arms industry that has considerable leverage with Congress a lot of privatized mercenary contract groups that are like parallel to military capabilities and a political class that again endorses this bipartisan approach that leaves the military out of any kind of critical picture. So we have this astronomical military budget that's more than uh, the next 10 countries yet are more insecure than ever in our history. See, and the paradox is the U.S. has had military superiority in conflict since Vietnam, and yet has lost all these conflicts, and yet can't face that fact because that would diminish the political willingness to back a high uh, peacetime defense yeah. budget. And interestingly, in the recent climate change talks in Glasgow, the enormous use of carbon-emitting energies by the military was completely off the agenda. And it, it, it should have been a part of what was being considered. Yeah. And like everyone says, history repeats itself. And what you're saying about militarization of America makes me think of, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the Ming Dynasty, those 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 groups that really focused on warfare. And that's mm -hmm. what they kind of built up so much and had, you know, all of their eggs in that basket, for lack of a uh, better term. And led to decline. Yeah. And yes, it, it would be very interesting to do a comparative study. Of course, ancient Athens is the best Western example where it was led by uh, kind of autocratic figures that led it into unnecessary and wasteful wars leading to its collapse. Yeah. Huh? And... And just as a side question, do you think that America's hyper-focus on proxy wars for the last 
hundred years has also affected this decline in our education system that's been defunded for the last 40 to 50 years with other welfare programs that have been defunded because of the military. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's contributed heavily to the de-development of American society and political failure overseas. And yet there's no political will to change because of this power of the military at the center of the system. And it, it leads to these extremist distortions like Trumpism because there's a kind of free-floating alienation and people are so confused and feel they've been left out of this system that they're receptive to a kind of autocratic message that blames foreigners or immigrant, you know, anti-immigration. And it also poses this old conflict between the countryside and the city, the, the countryside being the repository of conservative tradition and the city being the place of permissive decadence. If you look around the country, you'll see that the more rural parts are all the strongly drawn to the Mm-hmm. Trumpist way of seeing yeah. contemporary reality. And throughout the book, you talk about a lot of authoritarian regimes that go into this. I mean, approaching the Philippines, South Korea, apartheid in South Africa, wartime Vietnam, revolutionary Iran, Palestine, polarized Turkey. In the book, you mentioned that you felt trapped by this hegemonic outlook, as we were just talking about, of political realists at this time. But can you take me through one of the most poignant global peace missions? that you felt was going to really upset the authoritarian system? I visited uh, North Vietnam twice during the Vietnam War, and the second time with Cora Weiss and Bill Coffin, actually. Uh, It was a very good, interesting group, aside from the peace mission, Dave Dellinger. And the purpose of that mission was to bring back three American pilots who were prisoners of war there. And it was uh, an interesting politically, but I don't think very significant because it was shortly before the presidential election here. And so the media were very interested in this because Nixon was claiming that he was trying to end the war in a way to recover these POWs that were being held in Hanoi. And yet, It was the peace movement that actually obtained their release. And so there was great nervousness in Washington about this trip. But as I say, it didn't have much political significance for me. But the first one did, because the first one changed me from being a sort of intellectual opponent of the policies based on really a kind of realist assessment that this was a lost cause, that fighting against a national liberation movement in the last part of the 20th century was a lost cause, that colonialism was collapsing all over the world and that national resistance movements were able to outlast, had more perseverance than the intervening sides. 
it was part of what you were saying about proxy wars and finding collaborators in these countries that didn't have real authentic roots in their own country, were sort of opportunistic collaborators with foreign interveners. And that never creates a political legitimacy. And we've done that over and over again, in Middle East particularly, but Latin America too. So that that first mission for me enabled me to experience the war from the perspective of the victims. Vietnam was a peasant society that was completely vulnerable to these high technology weaponry. We were devastating this country at a huge distance that wasn't threatening us at all, and in fact didn't pose the kind of geopolitical challenge that was used to justify the war. Indeed, it became a hostile country to China rather than an extension of China's influence. And we repeated this recently, more recently, with the Iraq invasion that was supposed to contain Iran, but had the effect of expanding Iran's regional influence and discrediting the American presence in the region. So I felt I at least had learned a lot from having the opportunity to meet the leadership in Vietnam mm -hmm. and was very impressed by their humanistic qualities that were very different than that of communists I had met in Europe and Soviet Union previously. Ho Chi Minh was a very unusual communist and national resistance leader, and he had an effect on the people that had entered into the political elite there. It didn't altogether survive the war or survive his death, where they became more bureaucratic and more authoritarian. Mm -hmm. But when I experienced it, it made me feel much more aligned with their struggle than just opposed to the U.S. policy. This trip to Vietnam marked many points of tension for the activists involved as they worked in opposition to other pro-Nixon groups trying to reach soldiers in Vietnam. The goal of these missions was to set up linkages between the families of POWs in Vietnam and the POWs themselves as a humane way of carrying out anti-war politics. Falk was brought along to offer an international law critique on American war policies. So you talk a lot about your affinity for poetry throughout the book, which I really liked. And the way you write the book to me is almost this pragmatic romanticism. There's a hint of melancholy when you talk about the past, which I think a lot of poetry has due to its reflective nature. But do you think that your love of the aesthetics of language has benefited your understanding of politics, humanism, political theory? It certainly has influenced uh, my approach and the broader humanistic context within which I view politics. I've never too much liked or been attracted to politics in the narrow sense. And so I've found poetry, literature, philosophy to be um, a way of understanding the deeper roots of what has gone wrong in human experience. 
and uh, envisioning of what could be a brighter kind of future. So now present day, I'm here with you in Santa Barbara and you recently arrived back to the US after two years in Turkey, so I hope your adjustment is going well. But you began in global studies at UCSB in 2002, and you're currently a fellow at the Ophelia Center at UCSB for Global and International Studies. And it centers around the mission statement, Research for Action. So as a research fellow, how have you and will you continue to pursue research for action, both as a professor and an international relations scholar? Yes, I think I'm uh, incapable of not doing that. <laughs> And in a sense, it, it's something that has more approval for that kind of orientation than earlier. And maybe these disruptions of the last couple of years, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and Trumpism and all of these things, I think have made universities more conscious that they have some responsibility to the society as well as training students to be prepared for good careers rather than being separated from yeah. the society it becomes more connected with the society i have a especially in the last few years i had a very limited connection with UCSB because of being overseas and so on. Mm -hmm. But I have a kind of continuing connection with Queen Mary University in London, where I was appointed, strangely enough, to their chair of global law. Mm. And so and I'm supposed to spend a couple months there. Well, that's very exciting. Yes, it's a, it's a very congenial atmosphere there. Yeah. A, so... This is to conclude, but what are a few books or works, besides your book, of course, that inspired you that you would suggest listeners to read if they want to better shape their understanding of international relations, history, and theory? Well, there are two ways, I think, of learning and being stimulated. One is more dialectical, mm -hmm. uh, reading people you disagree with. I had a very good intellectual dialectical relationship with a very prominent English scholar, Hedley Bull, who was sort of at the mainstream, a very influential developer of the so-called British School of International Relations. And my, and my own colleague at Princeton, Robert Gilpin, who was another very good international relations scholar in the mainstream, I found, at least in a disciplinary sense, that they were very useful to read. As I've said, I've learned more from the outside the discipline, from thinkers like Albert Camus and the French philosopher Derrida, and John Dewey, and I was quite influenced by so-called existentialism for a while, and was never ideologically political in that sense. I never been part or wanted to be part of a political party or even joined a political movement. I, I did work for Jerry Brown when he ran for president in 1976, mm -hmm. uh, again, in, uh, more superficially in 1980. 
but that was really an exception to my relationship to mainstream politics. And of course, I was influenced by the people who gave blurbs for my book, Daniel Ellsberg and Noam Chomsky, Edward Said, Cornel West, all of whom I knew well. And that, that was important in my life because, as I described, this institutional marginalization was more than compensated for by these very enriching friendships and finding intellectual, spiritual, other kinds of stimulus from congenial voices, so yeah. to speak. Almost always operating at that, that fourth level of discourse, talking with people, people who don't agree, people who do agree. Yes, it's important to expose yourself to both. So I've been a kind of critic of Kissinger, for instance, from a long time ago. <laughs> in fact, I went to Australia in maybe 50 years ago or so, gave a lecture called What's Wrong with Henry Kissinger when mm -hmm. he was at the height of his influence. <laughs> Just like that other one I remember from the book about why militarization is bad for America that you gave at West Point or something. Yes. Oh, is, is that in the book? <laughs> yes. Uh, I thought yeah. that was very comedic, but also ironic. But is there anything else you'd like to add about your life, about the future of international relations? Well, I've written a recent essay, I could send it to you or give it to you, yeah. called Does the Human Species Have a Will to Survive? Which tries to suggest that the world is organized, has been organized around a subspecies identity like nationalism or religion, civilizational identities. But there's been a very weak species identity. And it's never been crucial to human survival before because even if subspecies communities or formations collapsed, it didn't have a systemic impact. Mm -hmm. But we've now through, in a way, it started with nuclear weapons, but also climate change and to some extent the pandemic show that we really suffer from the absence of a human mechanisms for promoting the human interest as distinct from the national interest or subnational interests of various sorts. And the UN was, in a sense, inclined in the direction of filling that vacuum, but it is so weakened by its own structure, giving the most dangerous countries in the world power of the veto, which in effect is saying they don't have to uphold the charter or international law unless they want to. Mm -hmm. And as a uh, delegate to the UN at its founding said, we've created an organization that holds the mice accountable while letting the tigers run free, is still the, uh, it expresses what I call the primacy of geopolitics. Mm -hmm. And that is again a subspecies way of problem solving. And so we have no effective mechanisms of global problem solving. Yeah. And I think that's a really cr crucial issue for international relations and for the whole human future in a way.
Well, thank you so much for meeting with me and talking about this. It was very educational for me, and I'm sure listeners will appreciate learning a bit more about your book. Once again, Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Pilgrim by Richard Falk. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for doing it, and I enjoyed having this opportunity. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany. Tune in next week for another episode.